Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A, where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so we can know what to believe. Instead of approaching the Bible with predetermined ideas, trying to find support for what we already believe, or maybe what we've been taught. The Bible tells us that the Bereans were more fair-minded than the Thessalonians because they received the word of God with all joy, but then they searched the scriptures to see whether or not those things were true. And that's exactly what we want to do. We want to search the scriptures because God promised that he would preserve them from generation to generation, and they're profitable for reproof, for correction, for doctrine, that we could be thoroughly equipped, lacking in nothing. And as we make our way through the scriptures, we want to be kind, we want to be generous, we want to be loving, we don't want to quarrel, we want to interact to be able to come to the truth. So if you have a question, then you can write the word question down, then write out your question, reread it a couple of times, make sure it makes sense, and then go ahead and submit it. We also are connecting this podcast to our last study in Galatians chapter 4. And in there, there's an an analogy and a metaphor from the Old Testament. And we rarely find the Old Testament explained in a metaphor. It was pointed out that we have metaphors that come forward, like Jesus is the Passover lamb, the lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. And that's correct. But passages that have been made into analogies. We find one in the end of Galatians 4 where it compares Hagar and Isaac, that Hagar is the son of the law and Isaac is the son of the promise. So if you want to be under the law, then you are the son of Hagar, um, Ishmael. And if you want to be under grace, then you're the son of Isaac, which is of promise. However, the rest of the time that you find scriptures in the New Testament explained from the Old Testament, it's almost always literal. That includes prophecies. When the Bible says that God called his son out of Egypt, he called him out of Egypt. When it says he would be born in Bethlehem, he was born in Bethlehem. When it said that he would be born of a virgin, he was born of a virgin, and so on and so forth. This is precedent for us as we look at prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled, looking into the future, that if we can, we should take it literal. It's going to help keep us in line. And if it's rare that you have passages from the Old Testament that are explained in an allegorical sense, it would seem to me that the prophecies that are going to be fulfilled, it's rare for them to be fulfilled. Even passages like the entire city of Tyre would be scraped clean and thrown into the sea literally happened when Alexander the Great attacked the city of Tyre. So when you're reading prophecies for the future, and this was the question that we got from the study on Wednesday night, is why why should we look at things literally? Can you biblically give evidence that we're supposed to look at things biblic, uh, literally? And I think we can by the precedent that is set. When we see prophecies in the Old Testament fulfilled in the New Testament almost always literally, then we see the prophecies in the future being almost always literally. I think this is biblical. Now, when it obviously can't be taken literally, sees a beast coming up out of the ocean, it's got all these horns and all of these heads, we know that represents something. And the woman riding the beast represents something. We know that. But if it talks about a chair and it doesn't say anything else about it, there's no reason for us to think it's not a normal chair. Or it talks about a king and doesn't say anything else about it, there's nothing but for us to think about it being something different than a king. Or when it says a thousand years, that the Christ will reign for a thousand years, that we take that literally. We have a precedent from the Old Testament to the New Testament to take it literally. And I challenge people in church that if they could find a passage that came over and was an allegory that to, to go onto YouTube, go to any comment section, because I'll be able to find it there, and tell me what passage you find in the New Testament that is allegorized from the Old. So it's instead of taking it over literally, it's taken over as an allegory. And as far as passages go, I don't know that there is one. And if you guys find one, you want to do the homework on that, uh, I'd love to be the benefit of your homework. All right. So welcome to TruthQuest podcast. Uh, this is our Q&A. Uh, our podcast has full-length teachings, hot topics, 
and these Q&As on them. You can subscribe to TruthQuest Podcast anywhere you get your podcast. Just look for TruthQuest Podcast with Robert Furrow, and you can listen to these podcasts while you're driving down the road, redeeming some of the time. Um, all of our teaching ministry is up on TruthQuest. All right, so you guys right now are a part of a podcast by asking questions today, interacting, or maybe even setting the record straight if you're at a place uh, where you want to do that. All right. So again, good to see you guys. Um, I've got my new computer up, by the way, and I'll show you a couple of different things that we're doing. I don't quite have it ready where I can type into it to find the scriptures, but you guys know I fumble around with my phone a little bit, but I'll show you. I'll show you what I got here really quick because it's fun for me. I've been trying to get this thing together. So here's our kind of our, our new scripture section, and we still at this point have to pull it down and go to it and then go over. It's, a, it's still a little bit clunky to go down and, and find the scripture, um, but you're able to change it there, and then I'm able to scroll up and down and go ahead and read it with you. So this will be one of the ways that we will be looking at scriptures now, and um, I like that, but we are working on now that we've got the computer that can handle it, and now I did that, so let me go ahead and do um, let me go ahead and do this and this. <laughs> there we go. All right. So I don't want to close that down. All right. So I want to leave that open, and we still have our iPhone scriptures that we can look at as well. All right. So let's go ahead and take our first question. So our first question is from Psychman Forty Five. Psychman, good to see you. And let me go ahead and get back to this here. There we go. So, and let me go back and get Psychman's question because it is now on our scriptures. I'm having a little bit of trouble today. What did I do? Switch him to black? Huh, what did I do here? All right, let me go here. Let me, let me X that out again and bring it in. I don't know what I'm doing. We're, we're bound to have a few glitches today because we got a new computer. So I don't know why all my wording got switched to black. Let me just see if I can take a moment and switch it to white. All right, um, let me see if I can do that. You guys are watching with me. There we go, I did it, yay. So let's see if that'll do the rest of them. Okay, so um, here Psychman says, when asked how involved one should be in politics, I say about the same level as Jesus. I'm not of the opinion that we can handily handle any situation better than he by doing things differently. And Psychman, I like that. Jesus prioritized the things that he was involved in. Jesus prioritized the things that he was involved in. He could have gotten involved politically. The Romans had done atrocious things in Jerusalem. Pilate had done atrocious things in Jerusalem. And when brought up with a political atrocity, he was told that the blood of Galileans, Jesus was from Galilee, that the blood of Galileans had been mingled with the blood of their sacrifice. That could be outrageous to Jewish people. But Jesus didn't take the bait. Instead, he said, do you think you're any better off than they? But you repent, lest you also have something happen to you like this. Jesus knew he came to die on the cross for our sins. And so he prioritized that. And we should prioritize it. Now, it's like, man, I know you probably would agree with me. We want to be political. We live in America. We want to vote. We want to be political, but we want to prioritize the things that we stand for and the things that we turn people off to. And um, this has been my philosophy, our philosophy at Calvary Tucson. We don't want to offend people unnecessarily so they cannot hear the message of the gospel. There are times when we will make stands on certain issues like transgender or like the unborn, an unborn child, but we don't see them necessarily as political we see them as our culture heading down a bad road with these things, and it's where people are living, and we need to deal with those things that they deal with. So I like that statement, Psych Man. I agree with it. I think it's great. I think that we should try to be as much like Christ as we possibly can be, and I think we have a lot to learn from him about the way he interacted and how he prioritized the things that he was interested in or the things that he put time into. All right? So thank you. Um, and Psych Man, you beat out Andre. That's impressive. All right, Andre, good to see you. Andre has a question. Andre says, um, I'm, move, I'm still moving things around on my computer here, if I can move it around. And you know what, I'll probably try to do that at another time. All right, so uh, Andre says, um, David was the light to Israel. 
2 Samuel 21, 17. Is Jesus' servant the light to us Gentiles mentioned in Isaiah 49, 1 through 6? Who is speaking in this verse? The me, M, my, me, my, are throwing me off. All right, so let's do, let's do this. Let's go to our new little system here now. And let's put in these verses. Let's, let's start with uh, 2 Samuel 21, 17. All right, 2 Samuel 21, 17. So let me go ahead and you guys are gonna see me navigate here. Second, huh, Second Samuel 21 and then verse 17. All right, but Abishiah, the son of Zariah came to his aid and attacked the Philistines, killing him. Then David's men swore, you shall no longer. Did I go to the right one? 21, 17. Nope, I didn't go to the right one, did I? All right, let me let me let me go back and look here at your question, Andre, and see if I can get these up. All right, so it's 2 Samuel 21, 17. Uh, so I went to 2 Samuel 21, 17. Let's just let's go. Let me do it the other way. Let me do it my old way, and then I'll bring you up on it. All right. So we're gonna go to 2 Samuel 21 and then go to 17. And let's see what that is. Did you get the right one there, Andre? I'm wondering. Let's take a look. Yeah, that's the same verse. So um, let's see. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistines and killed them. Then David's men swore to him, you no longer go out with us into battle, lest ah, you quench the lamp of Israel. I just needed to read on a little bit further uh, to be able to get it. So yeah. Um, so yeah, as the anointed king, as God choosing him, uh, David had led Israel for a long time by this point. And so uh, he is the lamp of Israel there. Um, good. Now let's go ahead and take a look at your second passage. And that is, uh, let's see what we got here. That is Isaiah 49, 1 through 6. So let's go ahead and go there. We'll go to... Isaiah, Isaiah 49, 1 through 6. All right, almost there, 49, and then we're going to go up to verse 1. Talk about clunky. We still got clunky going on. All right, I'll, I'll get to where I can just type these things in. It'll make this a lot easier. Uh, so this is uh, the servant of the Lord. Uh, listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you who people, you people afar off. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In shadow of his, in the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away, and he said to me. You are my servant Israel, in whom I will, be, I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense is with God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me um, from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back from Israel against um, to be gathered against him, for I honored the Lord, the eyes of the Lord, and God has become my strength. Okay, here we go. He says, it is to light a thing that you should be my servant. It's to light a thing you should, to Jacob, uh, to Jacob, the tribes of Jacob, to rise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the persevered of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. All right, so it looks to me like this passage is saying that it's talking about Israel. And I think that it's talking about how Israel is going to bless all nations or, or bless the nations and be the light of the world. And I think that when we're looking at that passage, it is talking about Jesus, but it's talking about Israel. And here we find there, there can be some confusion because through the descendants, the world would be blessed, but through the descendant, the world is blessed. 
through the nation of Israel, all the world's been blessed. It's interesting that they hate Israel so much, but all the world has been blessed because Jesus was Jewish. And sometimes people forget it. It, it, it's hard to fathom that people could be anti-Semitic and call themselves Christians and love Jesus when Jesus was Jewish. And so I think that that passage is talking about the nation of Israel and talking about the world, the light of the world that's going to come through them. But that light of the world is Jesus. So Andre, if that answers your question, um, then great. If not, then, then clarify that since we've already read the passage. Uh, we'll be able to look at it. But yeah, the, that, the nation of Israel is going to bless all nations, but it did that through Jesus. I think there's other ways in which we've been blessed by Israel. There are some that bring up how many Nobel Peace Prizes have been, um, been, been from Israel or from Jewish people. There's some that bring up all the accomplishments that have been accomplished around the world through Jewish people. And there have been a lot. And they make up a very small percentage of the world's population, but they have done a lot. And so some point out that it was that way in which they blessed the entire world. And maybe that's true. Maybe God did bless them to bless the world in that way. But we know that through his seed, one of his descendants, all nations will be blessed. And that's Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. All right. So thank you, Andre, very much. I appreciate uh, that question. We have a question here from, uh, from JG. JG says, from two Wednesdays ago, the definition of Hebrew Hallel is shining one in Strong's 1966 in the verse Isaiah 14, 12. Uh, yeah, so we're, we're going back to talk about Lucifer. And is Lucifer his name? And we have the King James Bible to thank for that. Because in the King James Version of the Bible, and let me, first of all, let me go there. I'm going to go to Isaiah 14, 12. And we're going to talk about whether or not Lucifer is the name of the arch enemy. We know that he is, that the arch enemy is the enemy of old. We know that he's the serpent in the garden. We know that he's the great dragon in the book of Revelation. But qu the question is, is his name Lucifer? And I'm going to be pretty bold here and say it's not, okay? In, in the Latin, the name for Venus is Lucifer. And Venus is also the morning star. And so sometimes people have confusion because Peter talks about the morning star rising in your heart. And Lucifer means morning star. And so people said, is this, this, how come they have the same name? And I think that God's being sarcastic here with Satan, with the devil, with our advocate. Uh, he says in, in verse 14, let me go ahead and bring, this, bring you in here. In verse 14, it says, I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. This is God saying, this is what you said. His pride and arrogance brought him down. I will ascend above the height of the crowds. I will be like the most high. You shall be brought down to Sheol, the lowest parts of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you. Oh, what did I do? I missed it. Yeah, I got to go back. Sorry. All right, let's go to 13, four, uh, 12. All right. How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. So that's the way the New King James translates it. And the, let me see if I can do it here. All right. So uh, the King James says, how thou art fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how thou art cut down to the ground, didst weaken the nations. Okay? And I think God's being sarcastic. You want to exalt yourself? How you have fallen, O Venus, O morning star. Jesus is the morning star. You wanted to be the morning star, and how you have fallen. So uh, let's take a look here and see if we can pull up um, ESV. Let's see what the ESV, what the ESV does with it. How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. All right, let's take a look at one more, uh, see if we can pull up. Um, let's see if we can get to, um, there's the ESV we just did. Oops, what did we bring up here? Well, let's see if I can. All right, so let me see if I can, what do I, do I have other ones here? Um, all right, American Standard Version. Let's see what the American Standard Version does with it. So verse 12. How they have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the morning. So see how it's making that connection? 
Now, one more thing, and I'm going to take you off of this to come over and do it. And I'm going to pull up my Strong's Concordance. And we're going to take a look at that word. So if you start comparing the different translations, and you can go and you can do like 20 of them, and you can start getting, you just go to Blue Letter Bible, go to Bible Hub, and compare Isaiah 14, 12 to how translators translated it. And you know that they're struggling with this word Lucifer because of the different ways that they translate it. So I'm going to go to my Strong's Concordance, and I'm going to go to Isaiah. And then I'm going to put it up on the screen for you, and we're going to take a look at this. I think we did this um, last time we talked about this. And I meant to do some other work and to have um, a little bit more information for you, and I just spaced it. So let's see. All right, so here we are. I'm going to bring you back in again. So here we are. We have Strong's Concordance up. So it says, how you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer. And then we click on Lucifer, and it brings up this definition. Uh, in the sense of brightness, the morning star, Lucifer. Now, again, this is the strongest concordance, the morning star. The morning star is Venus. And Venus in, in, in Latin is Lucifer and is directly brought over. So it's not naming him. It's saying, calling him, he wanted to be the morning star. How you have fallen from heaven. See, he wanted to exalt his throne above the throne of God. And how you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer. And so he is, again, you know, mocking him when he says that. And it's not his real name. Um, if you want to believe that Lucifer is his real name, more power to you. And I'm not saying that you want to do that, uh, JJ. I know you want to do know what the truth is. But I think that we have God being sarcastic towards this arch enemy. And that's why the morning star is brought up in that way. Okay? And that's that that was the strongest concordance. Um, I could bring up my Briggs and Dags, but I won't. Uh, you can take some more time to do some more work on it. But the name of the arch enemy is not Lucifer. And I love that. I love it. Because... Everybody thinks they know his name, and it's not. They think they're being all creepy, Lucifer, and they're not. Lucifer is the morning star. It's Venus, and we don't know his name. We don't even know the name. We know Michael, the archangel. We know Gabriel, but we don't know the name of the arch enemy. That is something significant to me. Everybody thinks they do, but we don't know it. He's got a name, but we don't know what that name is, and God has kept it from us for a reason, and it's a mistake from the, the King James Bible version that has brought us to this place. All right, so thank you very much. Uh, we can revisit it again. I'll do some more work on it. And um, I wanted to get the Latin Vulgate and pull that out and do a couple of other things, and we will do it. All right, so we have a question from Jari. Jari says, um, question, follow-up, Genesis 3.24, the flaming sword. There you go, Genesis 3.24. So let's take some time to pull that up, Jari. And good to see you, Jari, by the way. Genesis 3:24. All right. I know we wanted to look this up last time, didn't have the reference. So let's take a look and see what it says. Uh, so it's there it is at the very end. All right, let me go ahead and bring this up on the screen for you. So it says, um, so then he drove out the man and placed at its east garden of the Eden the cherubim and the flames of the sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. All right, so uh, Jari, that is what you said last week, that there was a sword which turned in different directions. Um, I never connected it to being powered on its own. I always connected it with the cherubim. Remember, cherubim are angelic beings that are in the presence of God. There's cherubim and there's seraphim, which are interesting in themselves, but was this was the cherubim turning this every which way? I don't know. But what God was doing was protecting people from making it into the Garden of Eden and eating from the tree of life and living forever. They had ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but they hadn't eaten of the tree of life. And so God protected them that they wouldn't live forever in that evil. Now, that's an interesting thought, an interesting idea. Uh, to me, that he kept them from the tree of life, that there was like a fountain of youth. There was like a tree of life that you could eat, that God created, and could cause you to live forever. It makes me wonder 
why would God create a tree of life? I don't know that I have all of the answers to that. It's, um, it is interesting. The Bible does say that God has put eternity in our hearts. The question is, does the Bible ever say that we were created eternal? Is that something that changed when we came to Christ? Is it something that changes, that changed somewhere along the line in that, that people would live forever? Or is it something that God intended from the very beginning? It's really interesting. But that's why the flaming fire was there, how it worked. Um, so he drove out men and he placed at the east garden of Eden the cherubim and the flame of a sword which turns every way. So the flame of a sword which turns every way. So maybe the cherub had the sword, but the flame of the sword would turn every way. And there was no way anybody, any, no way anybody was going to get by him to get into the Garden of Eden which gives us some more questions about the structure of the Garden of Eden that a cherub, cherub with a flame of fire would be able to keep people out. Maybe you could access it from all sides, but the cherub would be there and the fire would be turning it all out and no one would be able to access the Garden of Eden until after it was destroyed. But um, good work there, Jari. All right, thank you for bringing the uh, reference. I appreciate that. And let's go ahead and bring in another question. So um, let me just go ahead and see a couple of things here. All right. Um, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll do that sometime um, where I can show you guys the studio here and, and what, we, what I see um, from my perspective here uh, with you guys. It's um, gotten pretty elaborate. So I'll show you, I'll show you sometimes. I'll, I'll, I'll do a video where we kind of do a walk around in here. All right. So um, Joshua, good to see you. Good to have you here with us today. Joshua says, if someone is backsliding time and time again and falling, but not able to stop being a fornicator, a liar and a stealing and a stealing, coarse jesting and all of these things, is repentance still possible? All right. So that's a good question. Um, so the Bible says, it gives us in Galatians, the, the lust of the flesh, and then says those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It doesn't say that if you've done these things or you do these things, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. But if you practice such things, we're talking practice, we're not talking about a game, little Allen Iverson, but we're talking practice. And so what constitute pra constitutes practice? And you might be able to say, well, I think I can judge myself. And if I do this sin so often, it's not practice. But I think you're playing with fire there because God's the judge and God's the one who gets to decide. God's the one who knows what practice is and what sinning and repentance is all about. Now, if so, someone sins and sins and sins and sins and then truly repents, they can be forgiven. Even if they confess that they're a Christian and they're living just, just horribly wrong, but then they repent, they could come back to Christ or they could come to Christ, whichever one would be right. They all of a sudden want to do what God has called them to do, wants to do the things that God's called them to do, then they can come back to him. They don't have to um, think that they're not. Now, let's, let's just talk a little bit about this, Joshua. If someone is backsliding time and time again and failed to not bring, um, time and time again and failed by not bringing, being able to stop fornicating, lying, and stealing. I think of Samson in the Old Testament. I think of how he struggled. He was not a strong believer, and yet he's in the hall of faith. Samson's mentioned as a man of faith. So struggling with sin doesn't seem to stop you from being a man of faith. And I think there are Samson characters. I don't wanna make excuses for someone who can't seem to overcome a sinful problem in their lives. But I do think that God showed, Jesus talked about men in sin as being in chains and bondage. And I think that that's the real picture, the way that we should see it. And when we see someone who struggles and struggles and returns to sin and returns to sin, then we're seeing someone who's struggling with, with the chains of sin. We are not to be slaves to sin anymore, it says in the book of Romans. We've been set free from being slaves to sin. And so we shouldn't have that in our lives. But the question of can they still repent, is repentance possible? 
yeah, God knows the real genuine heart. And as far as I know, the only, the blasphemy of the spirit, the only unforgivable sin is when you reject and reject and reject until you've gone too far. Now, we don't know when that time is. We don't know, is it when you die that you've gone too far or before that? It seems that Jesus was saying it was before that because the scribes and Pharisees had done it. They knew a lot. They rejected. They should have recognized Jesus, but they pushed that away. And when you know a lot and you reject and reject, is it possible you could cross a line here and not return to repentance? I think that Hebrews 10, I guess, talks about that. And so if you want to repent, you haven't committed it. But if you say, well, I don't want to repent, then I don't know, maybe maybe, maybe that is possible. All right, Joshua, I hope that's helpful. Um, when it comes to it, uh, I, I would not want to condemn anyone who has struggled with sin. But also, and I, I love that we're going to start Galatians 5 next Wednesday, Lord willing, because the last two chapters in Galatians helps us to understand the victorious Christian walk, how to overcome sin. And it's not knuckle down, buckle down by your own will, stop sin. It's not that. There's, there's more to it. And it's absolutely amazing. And if we'll do the things that we find in the Bible, we will overcome sin and not be bound by them because God will change you from the inside. The new man will be renewed day by day. And we'll be talking about that in our studies here in the next few weeks in the application section of the book of Galatians, which I'm really looking forward to covering. All right. So um, let's go ahead and bring this in. Andy and Tanya, good to see you guys. Andy and Tanya say, um, Mark 13, 32, but the day and that hour no man knows. No, not the angels that are in heaven are the son of man, but the father. Question, what is the significance of Jesus and the angels not knowing the hour? It is showing a hierarchy. Well, Jesus did submit to the father. The head of Christ is the father, and he submitted to him willingly. They are equal. And this is the example of a husband and wife and submission between a husband and a wife, that they are equal, but there can be submission to one because God places it that way. So Jesus willingly submitted himself to the Father, even though he was equal to the Father. So I, so I think that there is something there for hierarchy. But Jesus didn't know because in his human state, think about it, when Jesus was born, he wasn't born, and then Joseph went to pick him up, and, the, and, and baby Jesus said, hey, dad, I just want you to know I'm God. I'm here. You don't have to worry about things. I'll take care of things, all right? I might need a little bit of help in the beginning, but I'll take care. He didn't know that. He cried. He had to learn. The Bible says he grew in wisdom and understanding when he was in the, after the passage about him being in the temple. So it had to dawn on him at some point, I think I'm God. And what a weird thought that must have been. But Jesus grappled with it. He got past it. He found himself in scripture. He found the passages that spoke of him. He spoke of those passages often because he had discovered them. And um, in his humanity, he didn't know the day or the hour. I believe now in heaven, Jesus does know the day or the hour. I don't believe it's only with the Father. And if it is, if, if I'm wrong by that, then it's not a big deal. Although you would think that Jesus as being God would know everything, but could, could God, Jesus, God willingly give up what he remembers the Bible says he remembers your sin no more. Is that talking literally? Does he literally not remember your sin anymore? I don't know. Maybe. That would be phenomenal if that really was the case. That he that once your sin is under the blood of Christ, that God doesn't even remember it anymore. That means that when you're praying about a sin, you'd be like, and God, and when I did this, and God would be like, oh, I, I already forgot about that, which would be an amazing thing. All right? So this is an interesting question about the son being God, the father being God, and the son knowing something different than the father, at least while he was here on the earth. And we do have Jesus in his humanity, fully man and fully God. And Jesus did know things. He, he knew it was in heart, men's hearts. He knew things that people don't know, that men don't know, but Jesus knew it. He says he didn't commit themselves to him because he knew what was in their heart. Uh, it says that he knew what was in Simon's heart when the prostitute wept at Jesus's feet and wiped his, her tears on his feet with her hair. And so he said to Simon some things because he knew it was in his heart. And Jesus didn't know those things. All right, I hope that answers your question. 
Andy and Tanya. Uh, it is an interesting passage, and I think it does speak of a hierarchy in that Jesus did submit himself to the uh, Father. Hey, by the way, good to see you guys uh, that are moderating today. I really appreciate you guys being here on Wednesdays and Saturdays for us. Uh, we have a question from YouTube, and WMB says, my family is into the false prophet William Branham and always putting my daughter wearing pants, telling my daughter wearing pants is a sin and quoting uh, and quote the Bible not to wear uh, garments that pertain to a man. All right, sorry, I need to make my, I need to make the wording a little bit bigger here on the new computer. Um, yeah, so, I mean, you put it right out there when you said, <clears throat> that William Branham is a, sorry, that William Branham is a false prophet. William Branham prophesied that people had been healed. And if he was, if he was a true prophet, they would have been healed. And he prayed for people. He said, you're healed. And these are documented. And then they didn't get healed. So that means that he himself claimed to be a prophet from God, gave people words from God, and those words didn't come true. There were also words that he spoke from the, from the pulpit saying that it was a prophecy from God that didn't come true. Now, in Tucson, we see the Brahmanites a lot. And, and I, I don't know if you're in Tucson here or not, but you hear them saying it. Let's go ahead and deal with this particular question that you have um, about wearing pants. Is it okay for a woman to wear pants? Well, is it okay for a man to wear pants? Because in biblical times, right, they all wore robes and they would gird them, which would mean that they would pull them up and tuck them into their belt, making them effectively into shorts. But they all wore garments. The idea was not being feminine and not being masculine. That's the idea. That's what's being said. And women can wear pants and look very feminine. And so, Never does it ever say you don't wear pants. This is where people get real legalistic. I don't drink, I don't smoke, and I don't chew, and I don't go with girls who do. All right, well, whoop-de-doo, right? How do you do it? So on. Um, and the church has been real legalistic about things. Don't wear buttons at certain times. Um, even some of the churches back in the mid-1900s when William Branham was alive, um, women were, wore, were to wear certain kinds of dresses, not just any dresses, but they had to wear certain kinds of dresses in order to be spiritual. It was very legalistic. So I would just have a conversation. I would do some research on William Branham. I would find out some of his false prophecies, and there's plenty of stuff out there, okay? Just go to YouTube, look up William Branham, and you're going to be able to find some things about him and the things that he said. He also believed in the serpent seed, which was that the fruit was, was sex, and it's just silly. It, when you try to teach that through that passage, it becomes evident that it can't be that because there's too many other things that would be too weird if that is what it was. And William Branham had all those kind of things. Um, it's interesting how many false teachings came out of that era. Jim Jones came out of that same era and timeline and faith healing kind of a thing from the People's Temple of Guyana. Um, William Branham, which denied the Trinity, which is his, his, his main false teaching, okay? Um, but no, there's no reason to think that women can't wear pants. It's just the idea of looking masculine and looking feminine, which really enters into our culture today. I heard someone talking about the whole transgender issue and they use the, there is no male or female in Christ. That Jesus himself, or, or that Paul, through the Holy Spirit, blurred gender lines. And that's so silly. Uh, it was, there's no male and female in Christ, so we're all sons and heirs. It's talking about heirs there in Galatians. And that you are a son of God. You've been adopted into the family and an heir with Christ. And then there is no male and female. So you say, well, what about me, a daughter of, of, of Christ? Well, you're an heir and it's using son because in Christ, there's no male and female. It's not talking about blurring gender lines, which is what God doesn't want. And so as long as it looks feminine and she's not trying to look like a man, then she's good. And um, I don't know what to tell you other than try to be loving with your family. Try to shine for Christ because it's pretty difficult, I know. All right. Um, thank you, WMB. I appreciate that. 
Uh, and we have Renee. Renee says, why is Satan not mentioned in certain books, but enemies are they from Satan? One of the books such as Esther, where Haman, the Agite, is the enemy. Thank you, Pastor Robert. All right, Renee, thank you for that. Um, so why isn't Satan mentioned in every book? Uh, I know that God isn't mentioned in Esther, and it is interesting that in the Dead Sea Scrolls, Esther was a book not found. Um, and I don't think that's because it should be left out. I just think it's interesting. And people point that out. They'll try to say that Esther shouldn't be in the Bible because of that. Um, but I never thought about Satan not being mentioned in the book. And um, I think that the Bible's about God. And I think it's, it's about his redemption that is brought to us. And Esther teaches us a great lesson about such a day as this, that God could raise us up, that we could be in a difficult situation. And Esther was in a difficult situation. She was a Hebrew that had been brought into royalty, but she was still a servant and could be killed by the, by the king if she got out of line. And that God raised her up to save the people of Israel during that time. She was born for such a time as this. And, th and those are great lessons that we have and God can reveal it to us. But I don't know that I have an answer to your question as why some books maybe don't mention him. I don't know what other book wouldn't mention Satan, at least in some, uh, allude to him in some way, or if Esther in some way doesn't allude to him. Um, I think that, yeah, he's behind, like Satan was behind Hitler in trying to wipe the Jews off the face of the earth. And Satan was behind um, these people in Esther and trying to wipe them off of the face of the earth. So Satan was involved, but why he's not mentioned in every book, I don't know, Renee. I think we'd have to break down each book and see whether or not he's alluded to and what the purpose of the book was and then why Satan wouldn't be brought up in that particular purpose. All right? All right, so um, let's see. Um, we are looking for another question here. Uh, if you're joined us for the very first time, really glad you're here. If you have a question, you can write the word question out and then write it out after, write your question after that, re read it a couple of times, make sure that it makes sense, all right? So uh, we have another question from Renee. Uh, no, that's, that was the question we just went over. I guess we went backwards here. All right, let me see if I can switch this out. Again, I knew we were going to have a few glitches today. All right, that's better. Um, so Kay says, Kay, good to see you, by the way. Kay says, question, if someone gets to the point of no return in continuous sin, does the Holy Spirit leave them? All right, I, I think, again, this is going to depend on your position on once saved, always saved. And we kind of come back to that a lot because if you're once saved, always saved, then you're not going to be able to walk away. So the person that continues in sin and cannot be restored to repentance in Hebrews chapter 10, and um, I was trying to remember if I know exactly where that passage is in the book of Hebrews, but that person that can't return to repentance were they ever saved or did they just look saved? Did they have a bunch of knowledge? Did they have all those things, but never really had a relationship with God? And it's possible that someone could be very religious. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And some are gonna say, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do miracles in your name? And he would say, away from me, for I never knew you. So it's possible that you could look like you are really close to Christ and not have uh, that real genuine commitment with him. And so then you cross a line where the Holy Spirit's drawing you, the Holy Spirit's drawing you. I think the scribes and Pharisees in the unforgivable sinner, that example, they were never saved, but they had a lot of information and they should have been. And the Holy Spirit was drawing them. But finally, Jesus said, that's it. I'm not speaking to them anymore directly because Isaiah says, hearing they will not hear and seeing they will not see. And so he only spoke in parables so they would not believe. So they had committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, but were not yet Christians. So if someone is a Christian and they get to the place of no return, that would mean they walked away. That would mean they left their faith. 
And that would mean that you could lose your salvation. So if you believe you can lose your salvation, then you're going to say yes. If you don't believe it, you're going to say they were never saved. I think, and I, we talked about this last week, I think it's very hard to lose your salvation, to leave it. I lean towards once saved, always saved. Jesus will leave the 99 and come after the one. And I walked away and God came after me. And I don't know, you know, maybe that's a little personal bias, but I saw what God did in my life. And I think that God is faithful uh, to be able to do all of those, all of those things. Um, so I was just seeing if I could find that passage here in, and um, doesn't look like I can. All right, I can't find it quickly. So uh, we'll go ahead and move on. But thank you very much. Um, I appreciate that question, Kay. All right, and good to see you. So uh, we got a little bit more time here. If you have a question, then write the word question out. And um, again, go ahead and reread it a few times. Make sure it makes sense, says what you want it to say, and then go ahead and submit it. Uh, we have a question from Maddie. Maddie, good to have you on TruthQuest podcast. Um, in Genesis, Maddie says, it never states on how water was created. How would it have been created if God never spoke it? All right. Uh, Maddie, thank you very much. Uh, let's go to Genesis 1. Let's go take a look at the um, creation story. And I'm looking forward to getting rid of the clunkiness here. Uh, this isn't too bad. All right. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So that's just kind of a general statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I would assume in that statement that he created water as well. That's kind of an over, overall statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was waste and void. What am I? What version am I in? Let me get back to my New King James. All right. I'm like, what is that saying? All right. So here we are again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So that's an overall general question. And the earth was without form and void. Now, some believe that the earth became without form and void. That God created it and he created it perfect. And then some believe at the fall of Satan that the world fell with him and that the God recreated it. And what you have in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is a recreation of the world. I don't know that that's true. I don't know that I hold to the gap theory. Um, and the, um, the, the idea that God somehow has um, recreated the world. Uh, I, I don't, you know, I, the reason I don't believe in it is because people try to put evolution in it. And I don't know about the age of the earth, but I do know that evolution cannot be true. And I know it doesn't have any proof. And so when we try to use things like this gap between Genesis 1, 1 and 1, and 1 2, that it became full, uh, void, uh, formless and void, I don't know. Now, it may just be saying God created the heavens and the earth, and then, well, the earth was formless and void. Now he's going back before the statement in verse 1. Remember, this is all very Hebrew. And when you, when you talk to Hebrew scholars about the breakdown of this chapter, uh, there are certain things that, 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 there are certain ways that Hebrew writers will put things. They'll often state them and then they give the, the, the statement for it. And we find that several times, or, or they give the event that happened with the statement. And we see that several times throughout these first couple of chapters. The earth was uh, uh, without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. So it seems at this point, the deep, it's talking about the script, the water was already created. So God created the heavens and the earth and it was formless and void. It seems like water was already created and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So um, again, it might not be as cut and dry as you might think when you look at how people have looked at that passage and that some believe that it became formless and void, that God created it. Um, <clears throat> there is a passage which says, God created the world and did not create it formless and void. And so they say, well, see, that's evidence that when it became formless and void. However, if you step back, God created the world, it was formless and void, and he created it. He didn't create it formless and void. He took it formless and void initially, and he brought things out of it. Then God said, let there be light, and he went on to do it. So I think that that helps us to understand that when God created the heavens and the earth, that water was there when he, when he created it. Um, he causes the dry land to come up from the water 
but the earth was already created. God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So then he creates dry ground that comes up out of the water. So what I'm looking at is a ball that's covered with water and the spirit of God is hovering over that ball covered in water while God is creating the world. And I think that that is the way it is, but I think it's a good thought and um, thanks for sharing that. Maddie, we really do appreciate it. We have a question from uh, Rodericks. Uh, Rodrick says, good to see you. And I hope I pronounced that name right, Rodericks. Um, Does sin send a man to hell who believes in Christ or his spirit is saved according to 1 Corinthians 5.5? Let me see, let me read this again, make sure I got it. Does sin send a man to hell? What hell who believes in Christ <clears throat> or his spirit is saved according to 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5. All right, let's go to 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5. And we will take a look here at what that passage says and see if we can figure out what it's saying. So, oh, deliver such a one to Satan. All right, let me go ahead and just bring this up. We'll read it. Um, so First uh, Corinthians 5, 5, deliver such a one to Satan, the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So this is, this is a mysterious passage. Um, what does it mean, deliver them over to death? What does it mean, the destruction of the flesh? What does it mean, giving them over to Satan? Those kind of things that they did back in those days. Was this something that an apostle could do? Can we do that? Can we deliver someone over um, such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh? I don't know. I've never tried. I've always been a little bit like hesitant, like I'd really want to deliver someone over to Satan that the flesh might be destroyed, but their soul would be saved. And I think the thing would be saying there that their flesh is destroyed, but out of that flesh being destroyed, they repent and give their lives to Christ. I don't think that it's saying that you deliver them over to Satan, Satan destroys their flesh, but their spirit is saved. I think it's saying that through the persecution, through the, through the attack of Satan, the person comes to Christ, even though their flesh is destroyed. That's a heavy passage. And that'll tell you the heavy things that you were dealing with. I found it. I wanted a little bit of coffee. And that will tell you the heavy things that they were dealing with in the book of Corinthians that he would be talking about this, right? They have all kinds of problems, real problems, and all kinds of sin they're dealing with. And um, deliver such a one up to Satan. Let's see what they, if it says what he was doing. Um, let's just take a look here. Immorality defiles the church. All right, let's, yeah, let's bring this up. We'll read this from the beginning. Uh, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. They believe that's a stepmother. I'm, yeah, I, I don't know the original language, so I'm not sure. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that uh, he whom has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed am absent in body, but present with you in spirit, have already judged as though were present him who has done this deed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you are gathered together along with, with my spirit, with the power of Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So it seems that maybe this is talking about excommunication. Um, you're going to treat him like a non-believer, which doesn't mean you don't talk to him, right? We talk, we talk to believers, but it seems like it. And there's some mystery to this verse exactly what that means. But no, I think that it would be better for someone to have their flesh destroyed and make it into heaven. And so someone who's doing something like this, and this guy repents, by the way, they may have delivered him over to Satan, but the guy repented. And, and then Paul says, bring him back in, in second Corinthians. All right. So thank you, Roderick. I appreciate that. Uh, it's uh, good to see you guys. Uh, if you have a question then you can write question and then write your question out and go ahead and submit it. Uh, if not, we're close to the time being done. And I'll go ahead and sign out. Uh, we have another question here. Um, all right, let me go ahead and bring this in. So Roderick says, why is every preacher who believes in the gifts of the Spirit labeled false for believing the Bible? 
Um, and show your bias in the question at all, Rod. Um, I believe in, in the gifts of the Spirit. I believe in the sign gifts of the Spirit. I believe that they were not just for the early church, but I believe they are for today. I am not a secessionist. Calvary Chapel is, I, we, we, there's a lot of things we don't want to identify with the charismatic church with because it's gotten so weird. And so Calvary Chapel tries not to identify with the charismatic church, but when it comes to the gifts of the Spirit, the gift of the Spirit, then we believe they are for today. Now, I'm going to disagree with you a little bit here. I don't think every pastor that brings up that believes in the gifts of the Spirit is, is attacked as a false prophet. I think of Chuck Smith, who started preaching in the 50s and passed away in 2013 and is the founder of Calvary Chapel. I pastor a Calvary Chapel and believed in the gift of tongues and believed in the gift of prophecy and believed in sign gifts and the gifts of healings and taught them. And although some want to do identify him as a false teacher, it never stuck because you got to be teaching something false for it to be able to stick. And so I think if I'm good, if I, I'm not afraid to identify a Pentecostal or a charismatic as a false teacher, and there's a lot of false teachings, Pentecostals and charismatics that are particularly in their circle. And that's not because they, they are believe in the gifts of the spirit. It's because they're teaching prosperity. They're teaching God wants you rich or they're teaching you are gods. And not every Pentecostal or charismatic church does that, but it happens in them. And so just because someone's labeled a false teacher, we need to go back and find out why. And I don't know that I've ever seen anyone labeled a false teacher because they believe in the gifts of the spirit today. We know that that's an in-house discussion. There are several things that we talk about in-house and we believe they're Christians and we believe that they're, they're, fall, they're, they're true teachers. See, sometimes, Rod, we need to distinguish between a real teacher that may be teaching something false and a false teacher that might be teaching something true. A false teacher is someone who pretends to be a teacher called by God and anointed, but he's not. That's a false teacher. But a true, a true teacher filled with the Spirit could teach something that's false, and that's a false teaching. And so in some things, we're not saying that guy's a false teacher or a false prophet. We're saying that's a false teaching. Now, there are groups that do teach false teachings, and they are false teachers. And I think that the prosperity movement, God wants you rich, is one of them. I think the guys that teach this are false teachers and um, uh, legalists who teach that you're saved by doing some work, I think are, are false teachers. They're teaching a different gospel. They're not teaching the gospel of Christ. And so there's some distinctions between them there. All right, Rod, thank you for your question. I appreciate that. Um, I think we evaluate each teacher with whether or not with what they teach, not what they believe about certain things unless they're teaching something and believing something that is wrong and teaching it that is wrong. All right. So thank you guys very much. It's been really good being here with you. Uh, we have a service in an hour uh, and we're going to be in the book of Galatians. Uh, if you, you can join us live at our East or West campus, I'll be teaching at both of those. The East campus is six o'clock. The West campus is seven 15. Uh, you can also join us live online, Facebook, YouTube, uh, either one of those, uh, calvarytucson.com, our, our Calvary Tucson app. You'll be able to go on and watch live. Uh, and then write down questions that you have as we cover. Actually, I'm only going to be teaching at the East Campus because tonight's Saturday, not Wednesday. So I'll teach at the West Campus tomorrow. Um, but um, the live services uh, online are at the East Campus, 6 o'clock tonight, tomorrow at 945 um, at the East Campus, and they will be live. Um, but we are going to be talking about false teachings. We're going to be talking about Jesus rebuking the scribes and Pharisees and um, them being hypocrites and what that hypocrisy means. And it's the last section out of Luke 20. So next week, we're going to be getting into Luke 21. So if you have questions, if you join us and you have questions about this study, then go ahead and ask those questions at our Saturday Q&A. Write them down and come join us at our Saturday Q&A. Uh, you can also just go onto YouTube, pick any video and leave a comment asking me a question from that study. 
So you don't have to wait till the Q&A. If you have a question, you can just go to any one of them. I'm going to see it um, in YouTube. When you go to your comment section, you see all the latest comments that are left there. You don't have to go through every video and look at it. So if you leave a comment on any video, it funnels it into there. I'll get it and I'll be able to get your question from the study tonight. And we are, we are, our desire is that these Q and A's would become a supplement to the studies to help us with clarity. Already we're getting some supplements to things we're talking about here. All right. So um, thank you guys. I appreciate it. Love you. Stay close to Jesus. I'll see you guys uh, next Saturday, next Wednesday, four o'clock, Lord willing. And then we'll have our teaching in Galatians. And next weekend, we're going to start Luke 21, which is the eschatology section that Jesus talks about. And we're going to slow down and be talking about the end of the age and the rapture and all of those things. And we're going to take time to really dive into it. So join us for those studies. I'm sure it will make for some interesting questions and interactions here. All right. So may the Lord bless you guys. May he make his face to shine upon you. May he look upon you and give you peace. May you be filled with his peace. And may God bless you this weekend. Go to church um, and, and stay close to Christ and serve and love people at church because that's what we're called to do. All right, God bless you guys. I'm out. We will see you later on.